uh, was very eye-opening and uh, heart-opening, too. And uh, so uh, Jim will probably say a little bit about this, but just to give him a little introduction, uh, Jim is a cold case detective out in the Los Angeles area, I believe, and uh, was for many years an atheist who uh, began at a point to apply his cold case detective skills to the written records in the scriptures uh, about Jesus Christ. And as he did so, he began to discover there on those pages the very same kind of uh, genuine testimony he looks for in solving cases and, it, and eventually convinced him of the validity, the credibility of who Jesus Christ is as written in the Gospels. And uh, so uh, right now, Jim travels the country and maybe outside the country in all different venues presenting uh, the cold case for Christianity. And uh, so uh, this morning, the topic is one of the most difficult questions of all. He's going to share with us the cold case regarding the problem of evil and the problem of suffering in our world. Uh, Hard, hard question. And uh, so we're, we're grateful Jim's going to come and bring his, uh, his research and, and expertise to that question for us. I do want to mention that this afternoon at 2 o'clock to 3.30, Jim will be back here in this room, and his uh, topic this afternoon will be the uh, cold case for the existence of God. Huge question today that faces our culture. And, and, if, you, and if we have friends here, I know we do have friends here today that uh, are searching out. God and faith and, and all these big, big questions that sort of center in how do we find meaning in life? Where is that meaning? Uh, if you're here today and that's you searching, we are so very happy that you have come to spend this time with us today and, and really respect the fact that you have questions and are searching these important things out. So, uh, let's inv- uh, we ha- oh, child care. This is important. Parents, we have child care for that session this afternoon. So don't, yeah, just come, bring your kids downstairs. They'll have a great time, and we'll have a great time up here. So let's welcome Jim Wallace as he comes this morning. Jim. I think it actually was exactly a year ago because the hotel where I stayed last year was just inundated with soccer players for some tournament, and they were there again this morning. Oh, my gosh. Just jam-packed with soccer players. Anyway, really glad to be with you guys. Uh, we're going to kind of break this into two halves, I think. We're going to break it into this more. We're going to talk about the evidence against God's existence. And then we'll look at the evidence for God's existence at 2 o'clock. But I think you'd have to admit the problem of evil is really usually seen as an evidence against God's existence. And it certainly was for me. As a guy, I was not raised in the church. Let me just give you my history for those who don't remember me from last year. And we broke the sessions last year up into Saturday sessions and Sunday sessions. And we had different groups in those two sessions. So if you weren't here last year for any of that, or you were here on Saturday, please come at 2 o'clock. I think we'll be able to give you some little strength in your faith. Anyway, let me just share with you who I am so you can catch up with me. My name is Jim Wallace. I work in Los Angeles County. I've been there for 25 years, 26 now, working these kinds of cases, cold uh, homicides, unsolved murders. And I, was, I grew up in this uh, system. My dad was a police officer before me. I thought about joining as a teenager, but I got distracted by a number of years of uh, art school. I went to get my bachelor's degree in design and my master's degree in architecture at UCLA and didn't get in the academy again until I was 27. So I was kind of a late entry. 
but I quickly kind of sped up and caught up. I worked a number of years in patrol, I worked two years in gangs. You see a lot of evil in those contexts. I spent um, three years working SWAT detail, uh, call out kind of stuff, um, entries and, and all kinds of crazy things you do in SWAT. And then I went to the back room, or we call it the back room, it's a plainclothes surveillance team where I was there for four years, um, which is great because you don't have to cut your hair for four years, you don't have to shave for four years. You could look like, like Phil, you know, playing guitar. <laughs> which I still don't get. I told him last night, I said, dude, it's time to shave that thing off, isn't it? What are you thinking, man? Did I say that? I was thinking it, it just came out. Anyway, um, but um, I thought we were so far above the Duck Dynasty line in the country, but I guess not. Um, but I didn't cut my hair either, so you know, Phil, I didn't, but my neighbors also did not talk to me until I finally did. And I moved into this look, and then they finally said, okay, I'll, I'll go over and introduce myself to my neighbor. And, uh, and they came over and said hello. And in this position, I've been working uh, this robbery homicide, and we right away started working um, cold cases as a collateral duty. And then eventually we formed a team that does nothing but cold cases. And these cases are high-profile cases. They usually make it on Dateline. We've had three on Dateline. We're finishing filming. The, the, we just got a verdict in August uh, of a case from 1979. And that, as uh, we finish up the taping on uh, Wednesday for that Dateline episode, which will be on October 17th, will be another two-hour episode of Dateline with this case from 1979. And they are horrific cases in which you really have to start to ask yourself, how could there be a God in a world where this kind of stuff happens? What is he doing during the commission of these murders? Is he just watching it? How in the world could there be a good God that would allow this kind of stuff it really does make you wonder. And I had those questions myself as a, uh, as a non-believer. And I made fun of my police officer friends who um, were Christians. Because if I asked them why they were Christians, they had really crummy answers. And here were people who were really committed to an evidential view of their work. But when it came to the big metaphysical claims about the nature of life, they didn't have any evidential answers for why they were Christians. And I felt like that was just ridiculous to be able to go in that transition. I couldn't accept it. And so I stayed out for a while. Now, I can, I, Jim did share my story a little bit. When I started looking at Scripture as eyewitness testimony, I did have a change of heart on this issue. And I really think there are good reasons for us to believe not only that, that Christianity is true, but that God, you know, God does exist. And we'll talk about that at 2 o'clock. I'll give you three good reasons to believe God exists. Now, will they be necessarily persuasive for everybody? My dad is still a committed atheist, and we've had these discussions for years. So there are lots of things that would cause you to deny a truth claim. Not all of them are, are evidential or rational. So we'll talk about that today. Anyway, the, I get a chance now to travel around the country and uh, churches like this and help you to see how these tools can actually be applied to the Christian worldview. As a matter of fact, I will give you a tool that you can use in the afternoon today uh, to assess truth claims that I think will be helpful for you. And it's a tool right out of the kind of casework that I do all the time. Anyway, uh, I do to serve at my department still, uh, although I'm an old guy now. I'm at the, now the chaplain, one of the chaplains at our agency. This is my son, Jim, who is um, also working there as an officer again. So it's been great for, for, for 53 years. We've had somebody working at that agency with the same name I have. We're like the George Foreman of law enforcement, I always say. Um, 
my son has been doing the job now for a number of years. He's using the same tools that I used when I was doing the job, and I used the same tools my dad used when he was doing the job. So we've got three generations, 53 years, and now another 30 to go. So we're hoping to get 80 years of service with our agency. Uh, now, I want to show for you, well, before I get started by showing you a short video, let me just tell you where you can go to get more information for, as we follow up on this, because today, if you look at your outline, I've given you an outline. I think the problem of evil is very complex and robust, and I think it breaks down into five categories, of which today we are going to only cover three, but I will send you all the other materials. If you were here last year, you know that I usually follow up all of my presentations with materials that I will send you for free that you can download. So I wanna hit the ones that are the big ones today, but because we're in a a Sunday morning church service, I'm not gonna keep you here till noon. Okay, I want you to get out of here on time. So I'll send you the rest, make sense? And you can always do some more research if you're interested at a website that I've been building for a number of years called coldcasechristianity.com. And I uh, post here every day uh, materials, a a whole section on the problem of evil in in the article section. You can research everything. I'm gonna send you that stuff anyway, but you can research it if you're interested. Also, we've got a phone app. You could download all of it and actually read all the articles, listen to all the podcasts, watch all the videos. You can watch this presentation online through your phone. You could have avoided coming here altogether. (laughs) If only you'd have known. So anyway, if you wanna complain about anything we're talking about today, you can do it on our Twitter feed with those hashtags. Okay. That being said, I want to start with a video. It's got some audio, so George has been good enough to hook all this stuff up for me. But I want to start um, with a, to kind of show you what a case looks like typically in the news the next day after you make an arrest of a guy who's done a murder, you know, 25 years earlier. These things do make the news because they're so unusual. So let me just play for you first a clip from our local. Not a great, it's like off the, off the web, but hopefully you can see at least what, what uh, it looks like. When this, what the world sees, because I think it does uh, uh, address the problem of evil. Because most of us uh, see a rather abstract form of the problem of evil. We don't know it personally. Uh, we may hear about murders, but typically we, aren't, we don't have anybody in our family who's been murdered, necessarily. So when we encounter evil, it sometimes looks like this. Detectives in Torrance say they have cracked a decades-old murder mystery there. The suspect, the fire captain, with the California Department of Forestry. William Charles Marshall is being held without bail this afternoon. Police say that he killed a woman 22 years ago. 21-year-old Robin Hoynes was beaten and stabbed to death during a robbery at a Kentucky Fried Chicken where she worked. Torrance police recently opened a cold case and took a closer look at Marshall, who had been a suspect at the time of the murder. Now, if you look at that, it's, it's, that's bad enough, I think, when you, when you see a news report. But how many of those do you think you see on a typical weekday news broadcast, especially in the Chicago area? I'm in Los Angeles, no better, trust me. You see a lot. These happen all the time. And it's almost as though you're numb to it, right? But behind every story like that, there's a family. And I don't you typically work, I mean, I work for my agency, but I really work for families. Families who have experienced great suffering and pain and evil, and we're, trying to, you know, we're not trying to get closure. You never get closure. You're lucky if you can get justice, but you'll never get closure. So I wanted to show you the, the web video. We did this episode of Dateline, and they, you know, it's an hour long, and it's very interesting, but they always overshoot what they actually are going to use in the, in the actual Dateline episode, and they'll make these short web videos that they'll put online as kind of extra video. 
And they did that with the family of Robin Hoynes, who was killed. I got to know this family very, very well. And they had, she had three sisters who survived her. And they interviewed the three sisters. And Robin was a really deeply committed Christian. And her family really isn't, except for Wendy. Wendy is really another very deeply committed Christian. And so she started to talk about, and the whole, they couldn't help themselves but talk about what was most important to, to Robin, which was her faith. And that's why I think this is a web video instead of uh, part of the standard Dateline show. But I wanted to play it for you so you can see what's usually behind the simple kinds of images you see depicting evil. There's always a family like this that really has, been, uh, has suffered. Well, there's two years between Robin and I, then four between her and Trisha, and, and then two more between Trisha and Wendy. So growing up, we kind of, Trisha and I kind of were pals, and Robin and Wendy kind of were pals. She always um, very unselfish and wanted to do for others, and she took joy out of giving other people joy in whatever way you know that could be. She just was a really happy, free-spirited, sweet woman. In her church environment, she'd be the first person to give a new person to the group a hug, welcome them in, you know, can I do anything for you? I'm, I'm here, whatever I can do. And just had a smile and a hug for everyone. She had given her life to Christ. It was just so transforming for her. And, I mean, she already had... Um, a really friendly, warm, welcoming way about her. But after that, um, it really became the centrality of her life, I felt like. And she was managing the Kentucky Fried Chicken, but she was that was just something that she had to do so that she could pay her bills. I think really for her, getting involved and staying involved in church and trying to just do what she could for the church it is really where she was going. I think she wanted to really be successful financially because she wanted to help our parents out. Mm-hmm. You know, we're just a middle class family. They're, you know, it's your average family, but you know, mom and dad struggle at times to make ends meet. And you know, if Robin could have, she would have taken that burden from them gladly. And I think she wanted a job that would allow her to do that. She did a lot in the time that she was here. Her work was done here, but, you know, it would have been nice to see, would she have gotten married? Would she have had children? Would I have, you know, more nieces and nephews? I mean, and we never got that opportunity. Now, it's really easy to get caught up in examining the problem of evil academically, right? So I could give you philosophical reasons why I don't think the problem of evil is a problem when it comes to the existence of God. I think those are really, really, really unsatisfying. If you know somebody who's hurting like this family, your theological discussion or your philosophical discussion about how the problem of evil can be reconciled with a good God is going to fall on deaf ears. This family needed a hug for years before they would ever be able to really rightly think through this thing rationally. So I always, there's always a danger in doing a presentation like this where you're just going to try to give pat, trite answers to the problem of evil. There are no such things. It's always in the context of a family that's been deeply wounded or a person who's been deeply wounded. And I think when we offer these solutions to those folks, we have to be very careful not to offer them academically, especially if you're a guy and you're in this room. 
Because we fix stuff, don't we? How many times you try to fix something and your wife says, stop trying to fix it. I just want to tell you about it. And there's times when my wife's much better in responding to the problem of evil as people than I am because she's not trying to fix it. She's not trying to answer the objection. She's just trying to love somebody through a process of grieving. So I'm going to lay that as a foundation before we begin because I will offer you some things that I think you can think about as you're talking to people about the problem of evil and even think through on your own as you're assessing the problem of evil. And I don't offer these as trite, quick answers. I offer these not as conclusions, but as starting points for the discussion. That makes sense? So I'm going to give them to you on your outline as a series of questions, questions you can ask yourself if you're doubting in this area, or questions you can ask others if they're doubting in this area. Let's get after it. Now, I do a lot of training with students, so pardon my approach to the problem of evil. Now, I can tell you this, too. Cops are the worst when it comes to having a heart for people because we're constantly seeing junk, and we get pretty calloused. It's not unusual for cops to be standing around a gruesome murder scene and be joking about something. Okay, I'm just going to be honest with you. It's a mechanism you use to get through that shift or, or lose your mind. You've got a couple of choices. So I, I have a tendency to, with young people to try to hit it hard and hit it right in the face. So I call this series Resident Evil. And if you're not familiar with Resident Evil as a video game or as a movie series, I apologize, okay? But I do think this is illustrative of something important because it's all gonna come down to where evil resides. What kind of problem of evil are we talking about? There are five kinds of evil that we, I think, as Christians ought to consider a way to address just to hold on to what we believe is true. And it's gonna be separated by where evil resides. Let me show you what I mean. The typical objection that we hear classically kind of goes like this. You know, God is supposed to be all loving and all powerful. Really? Okay, well, if that's the case, there's a lot of evil I see in the world, a lot of junk I see in the world. So how do we reconcile the junk we see in the world with a God who's supposed to be powerful enough to eliminate it or loving enough to eliminate it? If he could do all these, both of these things, why wouldn't he? Because apparently he's not doing it. Well, there's a couple of possibilities. He's either unable to control it, but if that's the case, he's not all-powerful. Or he's unwilling to control it, but if that's the case, he's not all-loving. See the problem? There's two possibilities here. He's either not all-powerful, and believe it, there are some theists who have moved in this direction. Or he's not all-loving. Few of us want to give that one up. Or there's a third option, which I held for years, which is it doesn't exist at all, and that best explains why we see this. Those are the three options. And if I give it to you that way, he's either not all-powerful, not all-loving, or doesn't exist. It doesn't seem like we have a lot of good choices, does it, as Christians? We don't like any of those choices. That's why I think this is a rhetorically powerful objection. And it all is going to come down, really, to this issue, evil in the world, and that comes down to where evil resides. So I want to give you five places that I think evil typically resides that we have to address. We'll do three of them today. I think there's problems of moral, natural, bodily, theistic, and Christian evil. These are the five kinds of evil you're going to hear somebody in your life at some point, or you maybe yourself have had an objection. You're going to hear somebody complain about it, or you're going to complain about one of these areas at some point in your life. We're going to do the first three today. I think it'll help you to walk through it a little bit, and we'll do those right now. 
So open your uh, outline, and if you want to fill in the classic power of evil, problem of evil, rather, we'll, we'll do it here. And we'll start with this issue of moral evil, which really comes down to the st stuff that people do to each other. Why would God allow us to do this to ourselves? Why would he allow moral evil? And this is a classic, probably one of the oldest objections to the existence of God. It dates back into the third century B.C. Take a look at this. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Well, then he's not all-powerful. He's not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Well, then he's not all-loving. He's malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Well, if that's the case, where does evil come from? Is he neither able nor You see the problem? Classically stated, and this classic objection has been offered again. Do you see how rhetorically powerful it is, by the way? We're going to talk about it at the very end. I can make this objection in just a few words. 20 words I can offer the objection that I think is behind probably 70% of skepticism. And I can offer it in 20 words. And we're going to spend the next 30 minutes trying to, to parse it out. You can't respond to it as quickly as you can offer it, can you? So I want to just ask a, a series of questions and get a series of questions for you to think about. Here's a question you can ask yourself or ask friends when this kind of objection is offered. And so I, I have asked my own kids and my own students to consider the objection this way. Well, would a good God allow us to love? Think about it. If there's a good God and he's created the world, which would be get better? A God who would allow love to exist or a God who would eliminate the, the possibility of love? If you're a God trying to create the world, which kind of God would you prefer? The one who allows love to exist or the one who doesn't? We would all say the same thing, wouldn't we? We would all say the one that allows love to exist. We, a good God creates a world in which we can love if God is love. But that's the problem, isn't it? So let's say for Valentine's I got married on Valentine's Day. What if next Valentine's Day I decide to give this beautiful card to my wife? You will love me. Roses are red. Bullets are lead. Take me back now or get shot in the head. <laughs> I think that's a very persuasive, loving card, don't you? Well, see, automatically it's clear to us it violates one of the central tenets of love to begin with, and that is that love can never be coerced. I could never tell my kids they must love me. That choice to love me is their own. I can't force people to love me. Love is uncoerced. And that's the first takeaway, it seems to me, when talking about the problem of evil in the world, especially moral evil. If I'm going to create a world in which love is possible, get ready, stand by. That's a dangerous world. Because I've got to give people the freedom they need to love voluntarily. I cannot force them to love. I have to give them personal free agency. But that also means that some people will choose that freedom to hate. That's on them, but I have to give you that freedom. I can't remove the possibility of hate because if I do that, all I've left you with is one choice. That means it's not a free choice. It's not your choice. It's my choice, and therefore that love you think you call love is not really love. It's the thing I forced on you. If God's going to create a world in which love is possible at all, he has to create a dangerous world in which hate is also possible. But you can't have love without it. Have you ever seen Equilibrium with Christian Bale? How many have seen that movie? It's an R-rated movie, so good Christians in this room have not seen it. But the rest of you who have, <laughs> I'm kind of wondering about. But anyway, 
The premise of this movie is basically this. It's that I'm going to create a world in which they all take this daily drug that eliminates all emotion, any reason why you might commit a crime. And the law enforcement in this world is tasked with making sure that everyone takes their daily dose. And if somebody misses a dose, they go to jail. Well, this main character falls in love. He skips a dose. I forget why that even happens. But he falls in love with somebody as a result of this and doesn't want to take the dose that re removes hate but it also removes the possibility of love because it removes all free choices. If we want a world in which love is possible, we have to have a love, a world with personal free agency. And that is a dangerous world. But you can't have it any other way. You can't make a square circle. God does not do the things that are not possible to do because they're logically or morally incoherent. God creates a world in which love is possible. And a Bad God would give you a world with that kind of dangerous free agency but not give you any rules on how to operate in that world. That's what a bad God would do. But that's not what our God did. He gave us freedom and then a set of guidelines so we wouldn't abuse their freedom. Yes, you can ignore the guidelines and abuse your freedom. That's not on God. God doesn't hand you a knife and not tell you which way to hold it. He's told you which way to hold it. You can hold it the wrong way. That's not on him. That's on you. Could he stop it? Yes. Why wouldn't he? We'll talk about that. But one thing for sure, he has to create a world in which free agency is possible or you can't have love at all. So I think, really, that freedom to love requires a dangerous alternative, but that's on us. And I think you see this in Scripture all the time, don't you, when you look at uh, Scripture like this. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. If God really is love, that means that this whole thing is about free agency. And what has to be respected first before I can have love is your freedom to love. God is a respecter of freedom. He will not force you into his presence. He will not force you into a heaven you reject. And he will not force you to behave a certain way. You should be celebrating that. But there's a reason why we have law enforcement officers because some of us don't celebrate that. Right? Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. We'll come back and add a few things to this, but I want to just kind of give you a question to begin with, and that's the question I always ask anybody who says, why would God allow some of these criminals to do what they do in your work? I always say, well, wouldn't a good God want a world in which love exists? And that begins a conversation. But there's another problem, of course, and that is this thing called natural evil. Earthquakes, can't blame that on people. Can't, I mean, you can't use the same approach when discussing those aspects of evil that seem to be rooted in nature, not in humans. Earthquakes, tsunamis, disasters. How do we get around that? Here's a classically posed this way. Bertrand Russell. The difficulty is old, but nonetheless real. An omnipotent being who created a world containing evil not due to sin so it's not about moral evil, must himself be at least partially evil. So I think this is an objection we have to address. And I'll address it by giving you another question you might ask yourself or ask somebody else. And it's a simple question. Are you sure that there's no moral agency involved at all in any of the things you're describing? Because I would suggest that there usually isn't a lot, but there always is some. I'll show you what I mean by this. Um, in California, we have earthquakes. What do you guys, what's the equivalent you have here in Chicago area? What's the equivalent thing that kills everybody all the time once or twice a year? 
Tornadoes, okay, there you go. Tornadoes are harder, I think. Where we are, you kind of get a sense we should know better because we have fault lines. What I mean is we know where the problems are. You can actually put them on a map. You can Google in California fault lines right now, and you will see all the places you should not build a home. But if you look at the actual, you know, the actual aerial map, you'll see those are all the places we continue to build. We build there all the time. And then every five or six years, something happens, and we realize, well, the standards need to be raised. The, the earthquake standard needs to be higher. Now, of course, every time we have an earthquake and someone dies in an earthquake, we shake our fist at God. And then we build our house right back in the same spot next week. So a lot of what we see in terms of our, our head-butting with the laws of nature, head-butting with the, the, the problems of nature, is because we choose to head-butt. That's at least a part of it. Let me give you another analogy that I thought was fascinating when I first heard it from a friend of mine who works at the water district in our county. He was telling me about a test he does to, uh, to see if water is pure. And he does it, he's like, I got this new machine, let me show it to you. He hooks it up to my, my faucet, and he shows me that I've got no impurities in my water. It tests it right away, and he does this all over the county. He said, but when I first got it, though, I brought it to another friend of ours' house, and I put it on his water faucet, and I tested it, and it showed that he had rocket fuel in his water. And I thought, something's wrong with my machine. So I said, well, I was, he tested it again, same result. He said, ah, you know, I'll, I'll get back to you on this. Well, he goes back to his supervisor and says, I'm in Lake Forest, I do this in the water, and the water's got rocket fuel in there. And I'm like, what? So they follow it back. What's the source of that water? Test that. It's got it. What's the source? Of, they follow it all the way back through the Colorado River up to, Los Angeles, to the Las Vegas area, Henderson, uh, Nevada. Above Henderson, though, there's no rocket fuel in the water. But in the water table below Henderson, there was rocket fuel. And nobody knew it. So they did a little research and they discovered there was a firm there that was building rocket supplies or doing aerospace stuff. They locked, the, the business closed down and they dumped all of their chemicals into the ground and they seeped into the water table and now we've been drinking this stuff for maybe seven or eight years and nobody knew we had been drinking it. Now the first time someone's born with a birth defect, they're going to shake their fist at God. How could God allow but this all comes back again to the free agency of humans that just wasn't known to anybody else prior to this time. This sometimes, I'm just going to offer that problems related to what appear to be natural evil can really be rooted back to some form of moral free agency. And we've already talked about why, about why God would allow moral free agency. But we have to kind of keep that in mind as we look at some of these that I think that a lot of this stuff especially as I read it in the newspaper, I'm always asking myself the question, is there a suspect involved, right? That's what all cops do. By the way, cops are so jaded. If I was to put on the wall the most benign word, we had a psychologist come to us and do a big study with us. He says, you guys are so twisted. I'm gonna put a word on the wall. And he put a word on the wall, it's a scoutmaster. Everywhere in America, when that word goes on the wall, people think, oh, this is a guy who's dedicated, he serves his time. He looks at all of us in the audience and he says, but I know what all you were thinking, huh? We all said it together. Yeah, pedophile. That's what, you know, because we're so corrupted in our, we're always looking for the worst in people. So as I look at the problem of natural evil, I'm always asking myself, is there something there that we can, is really attributed to humans, but we don't want to think about it? 
I think there is. Also, though, this is another question you might want to ask. Now, this is one that if you're not a Christian, you're not going to accept. But for those of us who are Christians, or theists at least, and we believe in the dual nature of the universe, that we're not just bodies, we're souls. We're not just brains, we're minds. If you have a Christian worldview, I think at least you might accept this possibility as an explanation. Are we really alone? Scripture tells us we're not, that every battle is not just a battle of flesh and blood. It's a battle. It's a spiritual battle that's taking place, right? You see Paul talk about that. Well, if that's really true, is it possible that some natural evil might just be the result of an unseen spiritual battle that's occurring? It's not always going to be human free agency that might cause a problem like this. You know, when you have a problem on your, your cell phone, this is my old um, storm. I now have a beautiful new, well, I got past that one too, and now I'm ready for my iPhone 6. How many of you guys got an iPhone 6 yet? Raise your hand. No iPhone 6s. There's one. One materialist who has got, <laughs> had to upgrade. It's been like three days since they had an iPhone 6, and you already have one? Seriously? Okay, you waited in line to get it, didn't you? Pre-ordered it, okay, okay. I still have my 5S, okay, but that's okay. But sometimes if you've ever not been able to get online with your phone, you just can't get online. What is going on? Is it the phone? Is something wrong with the physical phone? I can't get online, or is there something wrong with the signal? Because we recognize with our phones there are two realities in play, right? There's the physical phone and there's the immaterial signal. There's something that's also at play, I think, in the world around us if Christianity is true, and that's we have physical causal agents, but we also have spiritual causal agents. And isn't it possible that spiritual free agency could be at the core of some of our problems? I don't think I would ever have accepted that as a non-Christian. But if you're in this room and you're already a believer, then you have to at least accept that possibility, right? Let me ask you a third question you can ask with uh, the problem of uh, natural evil. And that's this one. Are you sure that nothing good ever comes of any kind of natural evil? I'm not just trying to look for a, a, a silver lining here. Have you guys ever seen this movie? Terrible movie. Hard to watch. You're only going to watch it once. Have you guys seen that movie? guy who's, uh, uh, who's hiking and he falls and he gets wedged in and he has to eventually cut off his arm in order to save his own life. 120, the movie felt like it was 127 hours, if you ask me, because it was, was it, who is it, uh, Franco, is it Franco in that movie? But at the end of that, if you listen to the story of the person who actually suffered through it, that kind of experience will change your life, and oftentimes it'll change your life for the better. It'll draw you to something you never thought about before. I'm not suggesting that we come to Christianity because we're so weak-minded that we have to have a crutch to explain bad things in our lives. But I do think that there are times when something bad will drive you to something good. And that's okay. I also think if you look at the character that the real uh, person who suffered through this developed as a result of this experience, which he would have said was not a good thing at the time, have you seen, uh, what is her name, uh, uh, Bethany uh, Hamilton? She is the surfer who lost her arm in that shark attack. Soul Surfer, yeah. That was the name of the movie. And if you listen to her story and what she's doing with the uh, uh, experience today, you, know, you don't want it to happen to anybody, but I think it does 
develop a certain kind of character that how many of you have ever seen anyone develop good character in victories in successes now we don't develop good character in successes and victories no one ever does wisdom is it comes from failure the wisest amongst us are the ones who have failed repeatedly <laughs> or you don't have to fail yourself you can watch somebody else fail and get wisdom that's the good thing about wisdom Here's a verse that kind of talks about this in Romans. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Don't think for a second that we're caught as Christians off guard. It's not as though we don't understand this foundationally. It's not as though Paul didn't write about it. Your scripture doesn't talk about it. This is, your scripture is full of responses to the problem of natural evil. Let me slip quickly over into this section that is kind of related that I think will help make sense of it too. And that's this issue of bodily evil. Why would God allow pain and suffering? You know, when you see it in the eyes of children, that's when it's the most striking. You've suffered it as a church family, it sounds like. When you lose a child to leukemia, it's very hard to understand how God could ever allow pain or suffering, right? Here's another kind of classic expression of this. So long as little children are allowed to suffer, there's no true love in this world. And I think that's easy for us to, to, to sympathize and to empathize with that view. But I want to ask you a question. Two things I always think about when I'm examining, I see a lot of pain and suffering in victims' lives. Two things. Here's the first thing I think about, this question. If there is a God... Let me start with this. I'll finish in a second. It'll make sense in a second. I'll wrap it for you. But if there is a God, I do think he's more concerned with our character than our comfort. So for those of us who have experienced some season of pain, and you wonder why God would allow you to experience that season, maybe you're through it now. Because I think God is more concerned with your character than he is with whether you had a season of pain. I'll show you what I mean by this. Have you ever seen this torture device? Ever seen that? I think you can get victim, or suspects to confess by making them do like 20 of these. Because these are brutal, right? This is what I think you, you put on, you, you roll it out, and it works your stomach until it's supposed to build your abs. Yeah, right. This is a hard thing to use. But those of us who have used it and have suffered through the pain, that it, it actually has a good consequence, right? I mean, anything you do that tears down, no pain, no gain. And it's part of this way of every aspect of our lives. As parents, you don't want your kids to have the easy way. You want them to have the way that builds character. You know the more you comfort them, you give them comfort, the less character they're going to have. Hebrews says that God disciplines us like love, the kids he loves. He doesn't want to give you everything you want. If I give you everything you want, you'll be a mess. I've got to find some balance in that. But let me just end with this question because I think this question is the one that really hits it for me altogether. And that's, do you think that your immediate satisfaction is more important than eternal life? Let me just end with this. The problem of evil, whatever kind of evil it is, 
is more of a problem for an atheist and for me as an atheist than it ever was for me as a Christian. As a matter of fact, I don't think it's a problem for Christians. I think it's a problem for non-believers. And they've imported it on us. Here's what I mean. As an atheist, I believed that life was like a line segment between two points, a point called birth, your life, and then your death. These two points were fixed. I wanted that line to be about 90 years old. 90 years would be good for a life. 80 to 90, is not those, those years, are they, okay, I'll give me 10 more, go to 90. And if I got something that, that, that ended my life at, say, 40, I'd be mad. Because I expect to get, and I want to get 90. 90 seems to be the goal. Anything that ends it before 90 is upsetting to me. It's a problem I'm going to complain about. But that's because I have a view of life that is a line segment instead of a line ray that begins with birth at a point and then continues past the thing we call death into eternity. If life is the line ray, I want you to assess any form of evil along the way. If I get cancer at 50 and die at 55, do you guys, if you're in this room, do you remember your inoculations, your vaccinations? How many in this room, just to make, make it touchier, okay, you got a police officer in the room, so you have to bear with me on this. Just don't record this part. If you're a guy, you were circumcised more than likely. Do you guys remember how painful that was? No. Why don't you remember it? Because it happened in the first couple of days, a day or two of your life, and since then you've now had 60, 50, 60, 40, whatever many years it is. Heck, by the time you were 10, you didn't remember it anymore because it occupied a very small portion of your line. Now I want you to think, if you had 60 years of suffering, but you only have a line that's 90 you're hoping for, you have a reason to be mad. But if you have a line that goes on infinitely, Imagine how short that suffering period becomes relative to the length of the line as it stretches out into eternity. The longer your line, the less anything really matters in the short period in the beginning. The same reason why you don't remember that pain the first day of uh, your life. You don't remember that anymore because it's only a small percentage of the years you've lived. It turns out as Christians, because we believe our life extends into eternity, we don't have the same problem that I as an atheist had because I was so determined that life ended at 90. Different kind of a, it should be a different kind of a problem for us. When we act like it isn't a different kind of a problem for us, we are really showing the world we don't believe in eternity. This gift that we've been given. God is far more concerned with that gift of eternity than he is with anything that leads up to it. And that's why I think we have to remember that the problem of evil is far bigger for the non-believer than it is for the believer. You'll see this in scripture. By the way, do you think that Peter didn't have some suffering and the people he was talking to in 1 Peter didn't suffer? He says after, you have suffered for he says a little while. Do you think it felt like a little while the years and years these people suffered and Peter's writing to them now and he has the nerve to call it a little while? How in the world can Peter call that suffering a little while? Because he gets it. He gets it related to eternity. Anything related to eternity is a little while. I don't care if you had to suffer it for 50 years. He's talking about it in the eternal context all, uh, it says here, all, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If eternity awaits all of us, this problem is not as bad as we think. 
Now, typically when I make a case, this is how I make a case. I make a case against a suspect on a number of things. I showed you this last year on the Saturday. I make circumstantial cases. All these things point to the same conclusion. I want to show you the case when it comes to the problem of evil. I can make the objection really fast. There it is. How many words is that? Not very many. That's a defeater for a lot of people. There are a lot of people who can't get past the problem of evil. And look how fast I can, I can say it. Now, this is the real problem, evil. And I showed you how fast you can make the objection. Let me show you how hard it is to make the response. Because I think the response, everything I told you this morning in the first three areas, I think some piece of all of that has to be offered in the response. It is about eternity. It is about character. It is about freedom and free agency. It is about all those things we've already talked about. But those take time to illustrate, don't they? So when I respond to this problem of evil, I have to respond to it by talking about the five different kinds of evil. And then I gotta make a case for why those things can be addressed. That's a lot of work. And let me return, for example, to the problem as first stated. There it is. Short. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. Sixteen words. I tried to respond briefly in a blog post by using a cumulative case response. I want to show what that looks like. Do you see the problem? This is the problem with the problem of evil. Is that I can offer this to you, and the objection you're going to hear is brief, but your response won't be. I say this because I want you to consider when you're about to address this problem with your friends, if you don't have the kind of relationship that gives you this time, get ready. It won't go well. This is not a Twitter debate. This is not a Facebook post. This is to be done in the context of the time you have with relationships with the people you know. We had a, this calamity here in Colorado several years ago where they walked inside and shot the people in the movie theater. You probably heard about it. Well, at some point, we have to respond to this kind of, uh, of tragedy, right? Let me just offer what Richard Dawkins would have to say about something like this. A famous atheist. He's written a lot about the problem of evil. He's written a lot about uh, moral issues in the universe. We'll talk about that in the afternoon session at 2 o'clock. And his response, what would he be able to say? This is what he says about the nature of the universe. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if, if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil and no good. Because, by the way, you can't get evil or good in a universe like this, and he knows it. At least he's a, a, is true to his own materialism. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That's how he sees the world. So if he's called to do the funeral at this particular um, at this particular calamity what would he have to say about it? I just want to illustrate the problem of evil is not just for us as Christians the problem of evil is for everybody everybody has to address the problem of evil it's not just us it's not just our burden he has the same burden what is he going to say I know what I'm going to say at the funeral what's he going to say at the funeral what can you say holding that worldview at a funeral like this I don't think you can say much I mean, think about it. He can't use his Bible to offer the hope of eternity. He doesn't believe in eternity. He's living in the 90-year line segment. He, let's use the book that he would have to use, his own writing out of Eden. I think he could say something like this. 
Do your best to take comfort in the fact that the universe is just a collection of electrons and selfish genes. Meaningless tragedies and acts of violence like the Aurora shootings are exactly what we should expect in such a universe. Some folks will experience meaningless suffering. Some will experience equally meaningless good fortune. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. In other words, suck it up. Get over it. It's just the way it is. I don't think that that response is any better than ours. Ideas matter. Your worldview matters. If there is no God, this is the only response you can actually give. Think about it. Now, we're going to have a talk at 2 o'clock where we're just going to talk about the evidence that I think points to God's existence. But if you're not going to be with us at 2 o'clock, I want to point you to something. I used to pass around um, sign-up sheets so I could send you the follow-up materials because I will send you this. So I have a book in the back. I'm happy if you buy it. No problem, but you don't have to buy it because I'm going to send you a bunch of stuff for free. You're going to get one email from me. My daughter used to put this Excel file together. She hated it. I figured out a better way. I have a hidden web page at my site, coldcasechristianity.com, that has a button. You just hit the button and you can sign up for this material. It'll be sent to you automatically. It makes it a little easier. And you can find the web page. It's hidden. It's in coldcasechristianity.com forward slash resources. If you want all the follow-up material, the videos, MP3s, PDF files, everything from today's talk, I will send it to you. Just sign up at that page, okay? You're only going to get one email from me because they're expensive to send. So you're only going to get one, and it's going to give you all those resources, okay? But we ended in a place that I think if you're not careful, you could be discouraged. There are lots of good reasons to believe that God exists, even after we overcome a major objection like this, I think it's, the burden is still on us to make a case for why we believe theism is true. And we'll do that at 2 o'clock. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it.